you so much for being here. We're excited to hear from you. Thrilled to be here. Thank you, Zach. Thanks for that presentation and opening to this whole session. Um, I agree wholeheartedly with everything, including the Bannerman quotation. Um, I did, did take a little bit of what time I have to transition over. I'm not an Apple products user uh, because I'm Protestant. Um, so with that said, uh, let's go ahead and, and, and get started. So the way I'd like to do this, I want to just give you a two, two kind of overviews as to um, how I'm conceiving of our time together. And uh, I want to give you all an opportunity also to, to interact if there's any interest in that at all. I, I, anyways, so a couple of things. First of all, I mean, partly I'm an Old Testament professor. Uh, so I spend time at these academic conferences where people just read papers. And it's often, everyone complains every year about people just reading papers. And yet, with that said, we continue to just read our papers at these conferences. Um, I'd like to try something here. I mean, if I were just to read this paper, it would be like the length of a SBL, Society of Biblical Literature paper. It would be about 25 minutes long. So what I'd like to do, though, instead of just jettisoning that, I'm going to actually give kind of like a verbal annotation of the paper as I read the paper. So there's aspects of the paper. I want to, I want to maintain the, the precise language of the paper. Uh, and yet at the same time, I'm going to sort of stop and we can talk about some things as we go along. Um, so for those of you who are interested in all the proof texts and everything in there, uh, I'm not going to cite each one of those. They're also not in my presentation slides here. Um, these are going to be very general scaled down slides that serve basically the purpose of giving you something to look at instead of having to look at me for the next uh, 45 minutes or so. Um, secondarily, uh, as we talk about the headship of Christ, you're going to note, if, you, if you've been interested in this discussion, and just probably by being here, you, kind, you probably are, um, you're going to note that there's a lot of overlap in my thinking between headship and union with Christ. As a matter of fact, I think those metaphors, if we were to do Venn diagrams of the doctrines that they cover and the teaching of Scripture that they cover, there's going to be a large overlap between headship of Christ and union with Christ in terms of primary metaphors used in the Bible. Um, I do think union with Christ is emphasizing the connectedness, the togetherness, the oneness of our relationship to Christ, and headship is emphasizing the primacy of Christ, the, the, the position of Christ in relationship to us. So as I go through this, I want you to realize I, I, I know that, and I'm a lot of the things I'm going to be talking about are going to be things that we could also put under the doctrine of union with Christ. Um, third methodological point, I don't pretend to think that this is sort of an ontological reality that I'm presenting to you. I really do see this more as a heuristic reality. What I mean by that is that these four divisions that I'm going to give you in terms of understanding the headship of Christ, I don't think that this is kind of in the true true, in the really real, necessarily what headship means. I think these are four categories that help us understand Okay, this doctrine of headship. Now, some of you know why I would say this, and some of you are like, why is he making that point? That's of very little use. But it's partly because I don't want you to think, well, this is it, and if you, um, you know, eschew Zach's uh, evidence or, or encouragement last hour that we need to be humble, I, I don't want you to go out and think, well, this is what it is, headship of Christ. I would say these are four categories that are helpful in understanding the headship. I could have just as easily come to you and said, let's talk about prophet, priest, and king and how they inform the idea of headship. I could have come, I'm a student of John Frame, uh, I could have come with a situational, existential, normative division. And as a matter of fact, being a student of John Frame, it's hard to end up, as I did in this paper, with four categories. Okay, I realize that. Yeah, no, no triangles. 
Though I would say the last category, which is eschatological, really applies to all the other three too. So I kind of did stick in three. Um, but again, to the point, what I'm trying to do is, is really highlight four ways in which we can understand what's going on when the Bible uses the language of head, okay, and headship. All right, so with that said, let's go ahead and start. Uh, I know that that's small back there for those of you over here. I apologize for that. Um, but uh, as I said, these are pretty scaled down version of what I'm going to say. I'll repeat these major categories over and over as we go through the paper. So let's begin. Okay. This is Christ as the head of the church. Every week, members of Christ's body gather together to honor the name of the Lord. Some worship together in the context of poverty and persecution, while others gather in the context of relative wealth and affluence. Over the course of my life, I've worshipped in church buildings filled with predominantly white middle-class congregants in bow ties and sundresses and seersucker suits. I've sung hymns in simple steel structures where Arabic prayers are offered up to Arab, and the majority of worshipers credit at least part of their conversion to a dream they had. I've preached in an office building where congregants' names are checked at a by a roster at the door for security purposes, lest someone try to sneak in as a spy. I've listened in wonder in a small house as a sermon was translated into four languages at the same time for the refugees who for a sweet but brief moment found themselves at home in a very foreign land. And yet as a result of what is perhaps the most improbable development in human history, these disparate groups of diverse peoples each consider themselves to be members of one body, one body of whom Christ is the head. They are united in Christ, and this belief gives them great comfort and a sense of fellowship, even with interlopers like myself, that is difficult to explain. The lang language of headship is usually, or is used commonly in Christian circles to talk about Christ's relationship to the church. But one is not always clear what that language means. How is Christ our head? How are we his body? both as individuals and individual members, or as a corporate whole. From a purely lexical point of view, the doctrine of Jesus Christ as the head of the church draws our attention to the metaphor of the body that is organically connected to the head. This is the primary meaning that's found even in the Old Testament use of the, of the word rosh, translated into the Septuagint and used in the New Testament as kephale, meaning head, though sometimes secondarily as top or as peak. The head is that member that is inextricably connected to the body. It guides the movements of the body. It provides direction and understanding as well as nourishment. Without the head, the body quickly and inevitably dies. Paul evokes this metaphor to establish Christ's relationship to the church, a relationship of head to body. And I give you the passages here, the primary ones, Romans 12, 5, 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 27, Colossians 1, 18, 124 and 219, Ephesians 3 6, 415, and 523. Though it is also likely that Paul was relying on extra biblical knowledge too of certain anatomical uh, texts that had been written were common in his days, and other commentators have noticed the fact that Paul seems to talk and use body language and, and sort of the sense of the body, drawing off of some of these anatomical understandings that were going on in Roman culture in his day. 
The metaphor of the body, or the head and the body, provides a vivid and tangible insight into the superlative nature of Christ's role in the church. And we do well to meditate on that fact for the sake of worship. For John Calvin, the head-body relationship provides the Christian with a deep sense of comfort. This is his quote that I have. Let me see. Yeah, here we go. The quote I have here. This is the highest honor of the church that until he is united to us, the Son of God reckons himself in some measure imperfect. Isn't that interesting? What consolation is it for us to learn that not until we are along with him does he possess all of his parts or wish to be regarded as complete? Hence, in the first epistle to the Corinthians, when the apostle discusses largely the metaphor of the human body, he includes, under the single name of Christ, the whole church. Essentially, he's also drawing, or he's not, he's not drawing, I'm drawing off of Herman Bovink, who's drawing off of John Calvin. This idea that this is also true of the image of God. The idea that the image of God is not complete in Adam, and it's not complete in Eve, but actually won't find its completion until the last human is born. Because the image of God is humanity. And in a similar analogical way, the body of Christ is not complete until the last Christian is converted and sanctified and glorified. It's a beautiful idea that Christ is not just having his body, he's building his body. As is the case in every promise being fulfilled in Christ's kingdom during the present moment, the church enjoys the status of both presently being the body of Christ and also becoming the body of Christ. In eschatological terms, we talk about the already and not yet, and in many ways that is the difference between the being and the becoming aspects of our salvation that we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The rich head-body metaphor evoked in biblical language draws our attention to a diverse set of doctrines about how Christ is the head of the church, doctrines that advance our understanding beyond the impression left by the organic interconnectedness of the human body. In fact, in biblical discourse, the idea of headship is best understood against the backdrop of the covenant. This is going to be key for my discussion. The backdrop of the covenant, that is the relationship by which God, according to his good pleasure, encounters humanity. Covenant headship, or what has been in, in kind of traditional federal theology or reformed tradition called federal headship, just in, 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 unless we be confused, that distinction is really more one of intellectual history. Federal theology is just that pre-20th century notion of covenant theology, federal coming from the Latin fetus, meaning covenant or treaty. Reformed covenantal or federal theology speaks to the role of the individual or group who represents the broader group entering into a covenant. The relationship between the covenant head and the group that he heads is arranged according to the terms of the covenant. Adam and Noah represent all of humanity in the terms of the covenant. Abraham represents, quote, his offspring, unquote. And through him, the whole world, all of the families of the earth, will be blessed. Moses is a sort of covenant head for the tribes of Israel, and David is a covenant head for that offspring who's going to sit on the throne in his familial dynasty. In each of these instances, the promises and curses of the covenant are communicated to the head, but are relevant for all those who participate in the covenant under the head. 
But the relationship between the covenantal head and the group is not merely representational like that. It's not merely one of representation or substitution. Rather, it has other elements. The relationship is also administrative. It's unitive, and it's eschatological. So over the course of this paper, I'd like to focus on that, the idea of, the he of headship being representative, administrative, unitive, and eschatological. For instance, Abraham enters into his covenant by communicating the terms of the covenant, including its blessings and its unconditionality, its sign and its seal. Those who participate in the covenant are united together as Bene Abraham, right? Sons of Abraham and Bene Israel, sons of Israel, which becomes their gentilic name, their, na their nation's name, like American or Chinese. Israelites, interestingly, yet throughout the Old Testament are never referred to as Israelite, okay? They're always Bene Israel, the sons of Israel. Those who participate in this covenant are united in this familial name. And lastly, there is this eschatological hope for those who participate in the covenant with Abraham as their head. There will come a time, they know, when they will be a nation, and they will lay claim to their homeland, and all of the families of the earth will be blessed in them. That is Abrahamic eschatology. The redemptive future reminds them of the prospective elements of the covenant of which Abraham is the head. So when we speak of Christ as the head of the church, these covenantal categories are similarly descriptive. Christ's headship is representative, it's administrative, it's unitive, and it's eschatological. So let's start with representative, okay? Let's start with representative. Representative headship is commonly applied to Christ in terms of his status as the second man, or the last Adam or the Christ as true Israel. In the former case, Christ is standing in as a representative for all of humanity. All of humanity who have been brought under the curse as a result of Adam's disobedience in the garden. Just as the rebellion of our first parents in the garden plunges all of humanity into the state of fallenness and life under the curse, Christ's representative righteousness in atoning death lifts up all of the elect to redeem status, one that includes both a pardon of guilt and an imputation of righteousness. This is important. Unlike Adam's work of rebellion, which was universally applied to all of humanity, Christ's work of humiliation and exaltation is applied to all those who are elect in Him, so that we are reckoned by God to be not just pardoned of our sins, but justified. That is also co-heirs. We don't just receive a return to the garden. We receive the inheritance of the king. We get the thing that Adam and Eve were longing for. I think this is often forgotten in Christian theology. We're not looking to go back to the garden. We're looking to go to the thing that the garden pointed towards. The Adamic eschatology <coughs> of all of the heavens and earth being filled with the image of God and formed according to worship of the Creator God. For those who are elect, Christ's work is efficient at once to turn back the effects of the fall and to communicate to believers the benefits that Adam and Eve look forward to in the garden. Likewise, Christ represents us as true Israel. He states himself that he is the true vine. And think about that. You know that language of John 15 of vine, Jesus being the true vine. In the Old Testament, the vine is always the people of God. It's always Judah, Jerusalem, and Israel as a whole. So when Jesus comes and says, I am the true vine, he's claiming to be true Israel. 
The Gospel writer Matthew can't even speak of Christ's early life and ministry apart from Christ as righteous Israel. Think about this. This is that text that some scholars think show that New Testament authors had no idea how to use the Old Testament. When Matthew says that Jesus coming out of Israel, or Egypt rather, is a fulfillment of Hosea 11.1, 1, out of Egypt I called my son, and they say seriously, obviously the apostles were kind of playing it fast and loose with the Old Testament. And yet if you read, if you read the following chapters of Matthew, you see Matthew is setting an agenda in Matthew 2 that he's going to then unpack over Matthew 3 and 4 and 5, that Jesus not only comes out of Egypt, the true son, he goes into the waters of baptism, comes out of the waters, is then received, what does the Father say, using that covenantal language of sonship, just as God called Israel his firstborn son, now Christ comes up out of the baptismal waters, what does the Father say as the dove descends? This, if you could put it in Greek, if you could, if you could italicize in Greek, this is what he said, this is my son. Jesus then, following his water baptism, goes out, having repented, by the way, it's a baptism of repentance, Remember, John the Baptist is doing a baptism of repentance, which is why he says to Jesus, you don't need to do this, right? What does Jesus have to, have to repent for? And Jesus says, yet do it to fulfill all righteousness. He repents on behalf of his people, just like he will die for the sins of his people. Sins that he did not commit. He goes out into the wilderness, but where Israel fails, Christ succeeds. He, he wins the temptation battle with Satan, and what does he do? He returns in first to the northern kingdom because, says Matthew, that's where, the, that's where the new conquest, the restoration from exile, will come first to the people who went in the darkness first, the northern kingdom. We would expect the king to go to Jerusalem, but he goes first to the people who have walked in darkness so that they can see the sunrise, so that they can see the light. This is a fulfillment of that mosaic eschatology that goes all the way back to Leviticus 26, in Deuteronomy 28 through 30, where Moses tells them, you're going to be dispersed, but one day, one day when you repent, when you return to me, you'll be restored to that eschatological promise you have in Abraham and Moses, and you'll have a better situation. Go back and read it, Deuteronomy 30. You'll be in a better situation than your forefathers were in before. We're not looking to return to Jerusalem. We want the thing that Jerusalem pointed towards that all of the earth would be filled with worshipers of God. The psalmist talks about the nations being grafted in, being drawn in, and Paul says it has now happened in Christ. So that Jerusalem for us, I know this is controversial, Jerusalem for us is just another Arabian city, right? Because we are citizens of the heavenly Jerusalem. Notice that's not replacement theology, by the way. We're not saying this is game plan B, that it used to be Israel, now it's us. It's Israel all the time in Christ. Get that? Okay, I live in Washington, D.C. This, this is difficult teaching, teacher. Okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah. The entire corpus of biblical prophecy is wrapped up in this eschatological hope of the righteous remnant of Israel turning to the Lord in a way that Moses required of them in the law. It is tragic that none of the post-exilic prophets or writers, including Ezra and Nehemiah, believe that this has come to completion in the restoration of 536 B.C. Haggai Zechariah says this is not it. We might be. It could be it. The Lord's offering it to you, Zerubbabel, you're the signet ring of Yahweh. It could be it. Ezra and Nehemiah building the wall, doing covenant renewal, restoring the people. They're saying, let's do it. Let's, let's get this party started, as it were, in the Old Testament language. Let's get this going. But how does the Old Testament end? 
How does it end? The last historical notice we have in the Old Testament is Nehemiah on his knees in prayer alone saying, Lord, don't forget about me. Lord, remember me for good. Go look at the end of Nehemiah. The Nehemiah, Nehemiah memoirs end with, Lord, remember me at least for good. This was a stage play. It would be a darkened stage with a spotlight on a lone Nehemiah praying and then the curtain would shut. And depending on what gospel you're reading, the curtain would then either open with angels on a countryside or with John the Baptist marching out into the desert. What? To do a baptism of repentance because he's trying to do the same thing that Haggai, Zechariah, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Daniel were trying to do to bring about restoration, and that is repentance. <clears throat> For Matthew, at least, you can't understand the work and the headship of Jesus without understanding how he is true Israel. I would even argue that in Matthean theology, so for he who has ears, let him hear. For she who has ears, let him hear. In Matthean theology, sonship language is covenantal language referencing Israel. Okay, I'm not saying that's all of the New Testament use of the Son, okay, because there is Trinitarian, more, more positively Trinitarian language as well. But for Matthew, he connects the Sonship of Christ to the Sonship of Israel, that Jesus is the true Son. The answer is found in Jesus Christ, and that is the question of the Old Testament. The answer is found in Jesus Christ, who, according to the Gospel writer Matthew, comes out of Egypt, retakes the land, and establishes his kingdom forever. In his gospel, Matthew uses the label Son of God to signify Christ's fulfillment and expansion of Israel's calling. Just as Israel is identified as the firstborn of the Lord following common practice in ancient Near Eastern treaties, that title now is applied to Christ. Matthew here is, is employing the same sense of sonship that one finds throughout the Old Testament of God's people, of Adam, and even of David being the Son of God because they are in covenantal relationship with God the Father. Under the representation of Christ, Jewish and Gentile members today can claim membership in true Israel. Jews claim it as children both of the flesh and the promise. Right? And we Gentiles, okay, speak for myself. Then my, my sister did just do one of those ancestry things, and it turns out we have like 8% Ashkenazi blood, okay? So maybe I'm also a child of the flesh, but I'm definitely a branch grafted in, right? I get to be branched, I get to be grafted in because of Christ. We are all represent, represented by the true Israelite, the one who runs the race, the one who finishes and receives the reward, Psalm 47.4. And we get to receive his reward as heirs united with him as our covenant head. Now with that, I want to transition to administrative headship. The, most of the heavy lifting is in the first one. Okay, So the rest now, we'll just get, kind of get to rely on some of the things we've just talked about. But are there any questions going into the second one? I saw, I saw one hand almost go up. Anyone have any questions? You understand what I'm saying in terms of the difference between a replacement theology and the, I would argue, biblical covenantal theology of Christ as true Israel? Yes, sir. Hey, could you clarify, like, for instance, I just was um, going through some of the connections of the tabernacle and the temple having clear... Um, symbols of Eden and then of course we're appointed ultimately yeah. to the new heaven and new earth yeah. that are then the actual images yeah. of Christ you know being what Eden was so I think sometimes it's easy for me to look at it as like everything kind of reflects the new heaven and the new earth 
rather than reflecting Eden. So could you kind of clarify how I think everything that you see that God uses through like Eden or tabernacle or, or temple to that type of new heaven and new earth? Because I think you are switching the reflection of a lot of people say it more reflects Eden, where instead yeah. you're saying it reflects what we're all looking for. Yeah, so the bottom, I mean, you've all heard the comment that all, all theology is eschatology. Right. And so if you think of it that way, um, you have to get that there's a trajectory. So that Eden is setting a trajectory. Uh, really, Genesis 1 sets a trajectory. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? Genesis 2. Now the heavens and the earth was formless and void, setting a trajectory. What do we need then? We need form. We need filling. Okay? You make Adam and Eve. That's, that's, so we can say Genesis 1, you know, creation eschatology is forming and filling. Uh, Adamic eschatology is forming and filling. Fill the earth and subdue it. Right? So the goal even then is that the garden, in, in, the, in, a, in a good kind of algebraic term to use to refer to this whole theme is idea of sanctuary. Sanctuary is the kind of the stand-in for all of that. The garden is the beginning of the work. Because of the fall, there's a major derailment, we might say. Not questioning the infra versus superlapsarian debate. Okay, but there is a derailment that then is reinstated with the Abrahamic covenant. You can argue that you even see it in the Noahic covenant too. I think there's some continuity there. So I would actually say sanctuary goes from garden to land, okay, and um, actually before that to the camp in the wilderness wandering with the tabernacle, then to the land that's centered on the temple, then in the New Testament to Jesus, remember John 2, he says, destroy this temple, I'll rebuild in three days, and even John says, we didn't know what he was talking about, because we still were thinking temple, it was like knock knock on the temple, but he's talking about his body, but now Jesus the temple is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty in his resurrected body, so what is sanctuary? It's got to be on earth, so what's the sanctuary on earth now? Think about the topic. Yeah, the church, his body, right? So that don't go do anything. You can't do whatever you want with your body, says Paul, because now you are sanctuary. And what is it doing? Expanding over the face of the earth, just as it was supposed to do in Adam in the garden. And then one day in what we call the consummation. So this has been inaugurated. It'll be consummated now in the whole heaven and earth being filled with the presence of God, being sanctuary, which was always the original game plan, right? Um, and that's why we won't have a temple. Right? There's no temple in the new heavens, new earth, because it's all temple. I like to compete with scripture, though, when, I am, when I'm speaking. I'm not sure which to do. Should I let just the scripture go? Or do I try to talk over it? There's a metaphor in there somewhere. For the, for the sake of semantic clarity, would yeah. you just say again what you said about covenant theology not being replacement theology? Yeah, so replacement theology is this. Israel was given, and this is a hyper-dispensational theology, too, if you've run into this. I'm not saying all dispensationalism is, but a hyper-dispensationalism would see this, too, where Israel, I mean, it's even been said, I think Darby even said, Moses' first mistake was taking the covenant that God offered him, right? Because it was a covenant he would definitely fail in. Okay? I mean, think about that. So what happens is that Israel fails, all right? So God needs to set up a new kind of game plan with a new people. Now, this is a little bit different. This is a different argument, and I'll give you an analogy of it without spending too much more time. But you remember when Moses brings Israel out there in the wilderness, Israel sins, the Lord says, I'm going to blot them all out and restart the nation in you. Okay? We wouldn't call that a replacement theology, right? Because God's honoring the terms of the covenant. It'll still be in Moses, right? It's still going to be in an Israelite in the line of Abraham. Okay? 
and all of the nation will now come out of them. Just like they'll be kind of like a bottleneck, just like there was a bottleneck in Noah for humanity. There's going to be a bottleneck now in Moses. There's a bottleneck in Jesus. Jesus is the righteous remnant. He's the one, and it only took one. But it needed to be an Israelite. It needed to be a real human. Okay. All those things need to be true. You need to be law-abiding and covenantally faithful. And now in Christ, we get to come in okay, by a faith principle, if you're a Gentile, and if you're a Jew. And guess what? That's the same way it was in the Old Testament, too. If you, if you were in the bloodline of Moses or bloodline of Abraham, and yet you rebelled like Dothan and Abiram, it doesn't matter that you're in the bloodline. The faith principle still matters. We're going to hit that now in the administrative part. Okay? So that's what I mean. This is not a replacement. Israel's not being replaced with Jesus. Jesus is Israel. And so the righteous remnant fundamentally comes down to one, as it were. Now we can also talk about it another way. We can say, well, and also, you know, what about Simeon and Anna and Mary and all these other faithful Israelites along the same time? Absolutely. Or Moses and Abraham and all of them as well. Well, they are all, their sins are not counted against them because of their union with Christ, either prospectively or like it is for us retrospectively for the work that he accomplishes on the cross. All right, let's talk about administrative headship. Whereas the representative elements of Christ's headship have to do with the way in which we relate to God in Christ, how Christ represents us to God, and if you want to think in prophet, priest, and king terms, this is highly priestly. Though, notice, in a, in, you know, then when we get to unitive, I'm going to talk about sanctuary, because we just talked about that in terms of the temple. So sanctuary is also kind of in the priestly governance. Okay, So these, these kind of overlap with prophet, priest, and king, but again, as I said earlier, these aren't perfectly aligned with them. Now we're going to talk about how Christ represents, excuse me, while Christ represents God to us. Okay. So here I have the quote from James Bannerman. I do highly recommend it. It's a very useful resource. He says this, Christ is the founder of the Christian church in the sense that he gave it its origin at first, that he impressed, he impressed upon it its character and arrangement, that he invested it, in short, with the peculiar form and the peculiar constitution that distinguish it as a society. Unquote. As our administrative head, Christ is our new lawgiver. He's our new covenant speaker. He is like Moses, who came before him in the way that he communicates the character of God in whom we've entered this covenant, and the subsequent requirements of God for humanity. Like Moses, he understands the wholeness of the person that God calls us to. To that end, he increases the requirements of the law, connecting action to desire, behavior to beliefs, in a way that fulfills what Moses articulated way back there in the Shema, that we are to respond to the character of God who is one and is our God, and to respond likewise with love, both in our heart, our inner self, with our nefesh, or our self-self. I think Robert Alter, who just translated that in his recent translation as body, I think he's actually closer to the truth than soul. Uh, if we can debate that, that's not heretical. It's just a better translation. Um, and then the strength would be something like your effort, or even in what we call today, like your estate or your capital. And that's not just financial. That's creative capital, intellectual, relational, any effect you have out in the world. All of that is to be united wholly towards the love of God. Jesus also dictates to us the means of grace by which the benefits of redemption are communicated to us. That is by the preaching of the word, prayer, and participation in the sacraments. 
Christ dictates to us how the church is to be organized, including the rules and the titles of its officers. Christ is not merely a representative head interceding for us to the Father. He is also the administrative head dictating to us the ways in which we ought to participate in the covenant. The administrative aspects of Christ's headship are especially on display in the fulfillment of his offices as king or his subduing unto himself. And yes, this is the Westminster Shorter Catechism, because after all, this is the Westminster Society. Subduing us to himself in ruling and defending us and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. That's kingly duty. Those who are counted as the people of God will honor and obey with proper reverence the king which God has established over them. It is not enough to claim covenant membership by some or other means, such as a bloodline or moral achievement, if one does not accept the administration of the covenant head. While it is the case that many scribes and Pharisees of Jesus' day resisted his teaching because they held to a kind of salvation by works element, which of course Luther highlights very you know, clearly and emphasizes in the Reformation, we have to also acknowledge, along with other Jewish scholars like Daniel Boyarin and others who argue that there actually was a kind of already a notion of a, of a plurality in the Godhead. He calls it the Second Temple uh, Benetarianism, where there's both, like for instance in Daniel, you have the Ancient of Days and the one who has the form of the Son of Man. And uh, Jewish scholar Daniel Boyarn argues there's a Binitarianism there. So it's not like the Trinitarianism was the problem. That's later, as Christianity became seen as more of a in conflict with Second Temple Judaism. And it's not merely a works element either, though that note necessarily was the case. Paul makes this clear in Romans 3 and elsewhere. Okay? But it's also this idea that many of the Judeans, though not all of Jesus' day, could not submit to faith in someone like Jesus. As with the apostate Israelites, Korah and Dathan and Abiram who came before them, their rejection of God's appointed authority, his appointed administrator, was rebellion against God himself. In the New Covenant, as in the Old, the manner of worship and the object of worship are of equal importance. We talked about how the Reformed tradition plays up the regulative principle of worship, and that's important, but we also need to remember the object of our worship. You can have faith, but if that faith is in Baal or Zeus, it doesn't count you much, right? Think about my wife and I, back when I used to live in Orlando, going to SeaWorld, and all of the video screens in SeaWorld had this kind of... You know, cycle being played over and over again of dolphins and killer whales, which I think they don't have anymore, is that right? Um, and then children like hopping through hoops and stuff, and then the words would kind of appear small and grow to fill the screen, and it just said, believe. Right? And it raises the question, like, in what? Right? <laughs> believe in what? Children having fun at SeaWorld? I'll, I'll believe in that. But that won't get you saved, right? The object of your belief matters. It's not just faith alone, it's faith in Christ alone. Unlike the covenant heads who came before him, Christ administers his covenant for his people from a position of unique identification with God. The apostolic writers were hard-pressed to find more soaring and superlative language to describe Christ's position of authority, of administration in the cosmos. Notice these phrases. I know you know these verses. He is, according to the author of Hebrews, the exact imprint of God's nature. Think about that. <laughs> he is, according to Paul in Colossians, the one in whom the fullness of deity dwells bodily. You can't say it any higher than that. You hear what I'm saying? 
He was, as Paul writes in Ephesians, far above every single other rule and authority and power and dominion. In this way, Christ's covenant not only surpasses all those who have come before it, we find that his covenant is the reality of which all previous covenants were mere, again using biblical language, outlines, silhouettes, and copies. Paul makes helpful distinction between the shadow of the old covenant forms and the substance of Christ. And while we find that this distinction is helpful in explaining the improvement that we have in every aspect under Christ's headship, it's also particularly helpful in its distinction that it offers us in our discussion of Christ's administrative headship. He is a higher administrator than Moses, author of Hebrews. He is a higher king than David, greater than Solomon. You see the value of that? And this is why this is in there. To this day, Christ administers his covenant from the right hand of God the Father Almighty. As a result, the church of Christ does not look to past saints or to covenant as our covenant head, nor do we look to relics or to ancient sites, but rather we look to a living king who is still our king, reigning at the right hand of God the Father Almighty in heaven. Now let's move on to unit of headship. So we've talked about representational, how Christ represents us, administrative, how Christ administers the covenant to us. Let's now talk about how Christ unites us. And we could say we're united in that we're all under his representation. Absolutely right. We could say we're all united in how we're all under his administration. That matters. If you're under the administration of the United States of America, that unites you in a way. But we're going to talk about administration, or rather uni uh, union, in more of an existential sense. So here's kind of the John Frame and me coming out. H how you can feel it. How you feel Feel that you're a part and made one in the headship of Christ. So there is a sense in which each of these four aspects of Christ's headship could be considered unitive, or rather to be considered different aspects of the church's union with Christ. I mean to speak only here of the Holy Spirit in his role of unifying the church as a body. Because of the unitive aspect of Christ's headship, the members of the church are existentially, experientially, united with one another in Christ, where they become partakers of the fellowship between, yes, this is the language of the Bible, the fellowship between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. As a matter of fact, as we're about to see, as Christ was about to be betrayed, this is what is on his mind. How do they get oneness with us? This spiritual fellowship enables the believers as individuals and as a corporate body to be free of the corruption of sin and the resultant alienation from God that once governed them, while also binding them one to another as the corporate body of Christ. Interesting that usually the New Testament to Old Testament relationship is one of corporate to individual. In this case, when Moses talks about in Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and strength, he then unpacks that in all of these individualistic ways, right? Tell your kids, talk about it when you rise up and when you lie down, talk about it when you're on the way, write it on your doorpost. That's individualistic. When Jesus takes that, that command, Deuteronomy 6, and exposits it in his prayer of John 17, he applies it corporately to all of us as one body. So let's actually, let's go ahead and read that. Let's read John 17. This is right as Christ is about to be betrayed. He prays what's often known. You know it as the high priestly prayer. He's praying on behalf of his disciples and consecrating them for their duties. Many of them, as you know, he's consecrating them for their death. Just as he is going to the cross, he knows that they too will go to the cross and be united in his sufferings. 
But what's interesting is that at the very end, he has this little coda where he, he switches from the disciples and he prays for us. You ever notice that? Jesus says, I do not ask for these only, meaning the disciples around him, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and love them, even as you love me. In his insightful study of the Gospel of John, Richard Bauckham is one of the few scholars to note that this is an exposition of Deuteronomy 6, 4-9, through 9, commonly known as the Shema. And this would have been on the mind and the heart of someone like Jesus, a Second Temple Jew, who would recite this in the morning and recite this as he goes to bed at night. Okay? This is one of the earliest liturgies that we have in the Scripture, maybe the earliest. Richard Bauckham is one of the few New Testament scholars to point this out. As Bauckham rightly observes, the Old Testament regularly speaks of the wholeness of the people of God. But here, the prayer shows us how we're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, and strength. Moses just commands it of us, but here Jesus says how it will happen. That we are going to be united in Him just as He is in the Father and the Father is in Him. It's interesting that Christ does not mention the Spirit here, but we know that is through the Spirit, who Paul calls the Spirit of Christ, that this union will be made possible. Christ is the head of the church, and the church is united in Him through the Spirit. The Spirit is not only the effective agent in the regeneration of the believer, but it is also the regular sustenance upon which the Christian lives out his life or her life as a member of the body of Christ. For Paul, all worship is true worship if it is the work of the Spirit. He actually says, you cannot say Jesus is Lord and mean it if the Holy Spirit doesn't say it within you. The wholeness in Christ via the Spirit is the actual spiritual empowerment for all of the church. Membership in the church can be described as voluntaristic because it's not compulsory by any human agent, but it can also be described as anti-voluntaristic because you don't just volunteer to be a part of it. It is only for the members who are regenerated and motivated by the movement of the Spirit. In one study of church marketing strategies, church members are encouraged to, quote, think of your church not as a religious meeting place, but as a service agency, an entity that exists to satisfy people's needs. While the emphasis on the church as a Christian service is laudable, no doubt, I'm not saying this to mock it, one must never, however, disconnect the work of the church from the united work of the Spirit, the unifying work of the Spirit. This is our unifying mission and our DNA. This is what makes me have something so deeply in common with that Muslim convert acting as a pastor in Algeria who's been in jail, who's been in prison three times in his life and doesn't even speak my language or even Arabic, which I kind of speak, but he speaks Berber. Okay, I have more of a connection with him than I have with my unbelieving white American next door neighbor. We have this deep DNA that connects us. Part of the work of sanctification or the hallmarks of sanctification is that you begin to realize that more and more over the course of your life. Because of its spiritual founding and maintenance, the church exists beyond the experience of its individual members. Now this is Bobbing, who I have up here, who I would also recommend to you highly if you don't have him already. Go pick him up. 
He's so choice. Now I'm quoting Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Go pick him up. He's so choice. That's what he says about the Ferrari. Sorry. All right. <clears throat> the oneness of all the churches does not, says Bob Inc., come into being a posteriori by the establishment of a creed, a church order, or a synodical system. Neither is the church an association of individual persons who first became believers apart from the, the church and subsequently united themselves. But rather, the church is an organism in which the whole exists prior to the parts. Its unity precedes the plurality of the local churches, and it rests in Christ. The character and work of the church is founded in Christ. It's enlivened by the Spirit and is directed towards His end. He is in us and we are in Him. We get to become partakers. Use that word on the floor of Presbytery, okay? Partakers of the Trinity. We don't become gods. We don't become members of the Trinity. But we get to, to partake or participate in the fellowship of the Trinity through the work of the Spirit, uniting us to our head, Jesus Christ. Lastly and shortly, and as I said, eschatological headship really could fall under this kind of broader umbrella of all of these have eschatological aspects to them, but I think it needs to be drawn out lest we think it's just about what's going on today or what's gone on in the past. As the head of the church, Christ represents the elect to the Father. He administers the requirements of the covenant to his people, and he unifies his people through the power of his spirit. When applied to the history of salvation, he becomes aware, or we become rather, aware of the eschatological aspects of Christ's headship. As the Heidelberg Catechism says, I believe that the Son of God, through His Spirit and Word, out of the entire human race, from the beginning of the world to its end, gathers, protects, and preserves for Himself a community chosen for eternal life and united in true faith. And of this community, I am and always will be, a living member. That's a talk about confessing the faith on Sunday morning. The goal and the fullest expression of the people that Christ is gathering unto himself can be found in the transhistorical, unified, global, and ultimately resurrected community of the church. Herman Boving sees the church in similar terms. He says, quote, in its broadest sense of ecclesia, the ecclesia is the gathering of the people of God, not only on earth, but also in heaven, not only in the past, in the present, but also in the future. Oliver O'Donovan talks about this when he talks about us doing politics. Anytime we do any interaction with other humans, we have to remember we are not just merely representing ourselves and those who live before us. We're representing the living saints in heaven. Okay? There's a truth in that. You don't have to be Roman Catholic to think about the communion of saints. Right? Rather, the church of Christ is the eschatological people of God from diverse eras and regions, ordained before time and established forever in the new heavens and new earth, under the Father and the Son, in the Son, and empowered by the Spirit. In the new heavens and new earth, all distinction between the world, the church, the visible, and the invisible will be removed as the burden of the curse is lifted from the cosmos and from human experience. So just briefly, in conclusion, this doctrine of headship of Christ over the church provides us with an organic, um, felt, real, vivid description of the supremacy and the necessity of Christ in relationship to the church. We do not thoroughly understand the facets of Christ's headship, however, until we understand it in its covenantal context. But as we do that, 
we recognize the depth of how Christ represents us to God, how He administers the covenant to us, how He unites us by His Spirit, and how He ushers us into the fullness of the age to come. The doctrine has become a cause of consolation and conviction for me and for my family, and it should be for every believer. I've experienced this with my wife and my five daughters. Yes, five, yes, daughters. I just saw a fiddler on the roof. One of my daughters was in it. I was like, this is about me. All he needs is Christ. All right, our family trusts in the promises projected and fulfilled in the scriptures for true believers, covered from the beginning of time under the headship of Christ. We give thanks to God when our baptism is made efficacious by faith and bears the fruit of true worship in Christ, the head of the church. I do think the headship has a deep, deep help for us, particularly in today's day and age when there are so many forces that is dividing the fellowship of the church. Whether it's discussion of race or privilege, whether it's discussion of different views and sort of the hot button topics that is all amplified up to 11 via social media. This idea of coming to one another as those who mutually submit to Christ gives us a cause for peace and a cause for reconciliation. I think it means that we can acknowledge privilege, and we can acknowledge past abuses, and we know that that's not where our salvation lies, right? But that we have this shared DNA which goes deeper, so much deeper than so many of these other things that have that that, that kind of you know vie for our attention and our time. It should inform, and I say this to pastors, to all to all of you involved in public discussions, whether it's in healthy ways or in unhealthy ways. Um, be reminded as we go, even going in rebuke to fellow Christians, that we are going with this shared DNA of the Spirit, with this shared loyalty and lordship of Jesus Christ, with this shared future, that, that in the future, when we've been there 10,000 years, right, shining as the sun, right, and we've no less days to look into that glory of Christ and the Father and the Spirit, that we're going to be standing next to these other Christians who are very different from us, in background, in experience, and maybe even now for a time in the way that we engaged with some of those non-essentials. But it gives us a, a theological rationale for that humility that we just talked about in the last hour with Zach. Going to each other with that shared humility of however you act, think about the 5,000th year in the new, kingdom, new heaven and new earth. Are you and you're still sitting next to that guy or that gal who you just rebuked. Are you going to be happy? Are you going to be at peace with the way in which you interacted with them on earth today? I think the lordship and the headship of Christ is a great cause for unity for us and a great challenge to us in the way that we interact with one another.